The title for this evening's talk is Teachings That Work. Let me explain that. As some of you may know, if you've read the scriptures or heard about them, shortly after his enlightenment, the Buddha asked himself whether there would be any point in trying to teach, to communicate to others what he had just discovered in that uh, famous night where he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and finally he understood. Mm. But the morning after and in the following days he said to himself, it seemed to him that humans were so hooked up on chasing after worldly delights that nobody, nobody would be really interested in giving them up in exchange for another, even if more reliable, form of happiness. So he was doubting and thinking, oh, how wonderful, you know, I didn't have to do anything else. I just can enjoy myself. No more work to do. But obviously he had a dialogue with himself. And, um, and the legend turns his dialogue with himself into a dialogue between him and the god Brahma, who apparently understood the dilemma the Buddha was in, so looked down, saw the Buddha having that problem, and quickly descended and appeared in front of him. And Brahma argued the other way. He said, look, I don't know, he said Buddha, whatever. Look, I'm sure there's still some, down there, some beings, quote, with little dust in their eyes, unquote, could be able to understand your teachings. And that did it. It convinced the Buddha that teachings could be understood. Okay, so what to teach? Oh, the goal of teaching was obvious to him, to the Buddha. He had just experienced liberation from all the bondage and constraints in his life, a pampered life most of the time, but still full of constraints anyway. And he had discovered an extraordinary sense of happiness and freedom. So, obviously, that's what he wanted to teach, to teach others how to experience that too. Now, because the Buddha was so keen in making sure that his teachings would be 
understood clearly. He often defined the goal not just as freedom or liberation in the abstract, but as freedom from. The obvious thing is to be free from suffering. Because suffering is something, isn't it, that we all know firsthand. Of course, in the end, the goal is not just being free from suffering here and there, but to be free from suffering once and for all. To emphasize the difference between a respite from suffering and the real thing, the Buddha used as an analogy the different kinds of wood in a tree. Now remember, this guy was talking in India 25 centuries ago, and still in India today too, people depend very much on trees for heat and fire. And so gathering wood from a tree is very important. So use that analogy. And he said, in looking for wood in a tree, don't be satisfied with the bark or the twigs or the branches, but look for the heartwood. And this is what he said. I'd like to repeat the words of the Buddhas. Uh, as he said them in the scriptures. He says, uh, he amongst some clansmen goes forth out of faith from the home into homelessness, considering I'm a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I'm a victim of suffering, prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. And so the man goes to do his practice, and now Again, the Buddha says, being diligent, he achieves the attainment of virtue. He's pleased with that attainment of virtue, and his intention is fulfilled. On account of it, he lords himself and disparages others thus. I am virtuous, of good character, but these other monks are immoral of evil character. He becomes intoxicated with that attainment of virtue, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent, he lives in suffering. And now for the metaphor of the hardwood. It's like if a man needing hardwood, seeking hardwood, wandering in search of hardwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of hardwood. Passing over its hardwood, its sapwood, and its inner bark, he would cut off the outer bark and take away thinking it was 
the hardwood. Then a man with good sight, seeing him, may say, the good man did not know the hardwood. Thus, while needing hardwood, he cut off its outer bark and took it away, thinking it was hardwood. Whatever it was this good man had to make with hardwood, his purpose will not be served. By the way, this is in the style of the scriptures, very repetitive. That was the style of the time. Also, remember, these things were never written. You heard them. So you had to repeat them a little bit. But basically, here's a guy who wants to be free from suffering, and he discovers that he can be virtuous, which is fine, it's okay, but it's just the outer bark or whatever. It's just not the essence. The essence of the teaching is to be truly free from suffering. And, and of course, he goes on to repeat that with many other things, uh, many other aspects. Um, about the pursuit of honor, of concentration, of vision, of knowledge, which, which are part of the path, but not liberation itself, not the heartwood of the teachings. So the Buddha concludes So this holy life, monks, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is the unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. I grant you. It's a tall order. But that's the goal. So, okay, liberation is the goal. But how do we actually get there? This talk, as its title makes clear, is about teachings that work. Its main point is that it is not very helpful to just describe the goal of the teaching without showing how to get there in the practice. And this is a point that the Buddha made over and over again. What matters is what works. Or to put it in plainer language, philosophy is for the birds. He made this point abundantly clear in a passage in the scriptures in which he considers how to proceed if we were to run into a man who has just been wounded by a poisoned arrow. Should we take him to a sur surgeon who would presumably be able to pull out the arrow and heal the wound? Or should we instead get engaged, all caught up in speculations about who might have shot the arrow and why, and in the process, 
let the guy die. And the Buddha said, we are facing the same dilemma when trying to help others reach liberation. Should we get involved in metaphysical discussions about whether the world is infinite, infinite or whatever? Or should we rather do whatever is doable in order to pull out the arrow of suffering for good? Here's another passage of the scriptures in which the Buddha strikes a very similar pragmatic note, if I can just find it. Here it is. Once the blessed one, the Buddha, was staying at Kosambi in the forest. Then, picking up a few leaves with his hand, he asked the monks. I picked up a few from my garden as well. Here. Whoops. So, here are the leaves in my hands. And he said, what do you think, monks? Which are more numerous? The few leaves in my hand or those overhead around us in the whole forest. Venerable sir, sir, the monk answered, the leaves that the blessed one has taken up in his hands are few. Those overhead in the forest are far more numerous. Then the Buddha goes on to say, in the same way, monks, the things I have directly known but have not taught you are numerous, while the things that I have taught you are few. And why haven't I taught those many things? Because they are without benefit, irrelevant to the fundamentals of spiritual life, and do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to liberation. That's why I haven't taught them. And what have I taught? I have taught, this is suffering. I, I guess you can take the leaves. This is suffering. I have taught, this is the origin of suffering. I have taught, this is the way leading, this is the cessation of suffering, and I have taught, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And why, monks, have I taught these things? Because they are beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of spiritual life, and do lead to disenchantment, disenchantment to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to liberation. This is why I have taught them. Therefore, an effort should be made to understand this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, 
This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And if we were to pick up, now I say that, but I'm sure the Buddha would agree. <laughs> If we were to pick up just one single key leaf, leaf from this handful, that would be the one that pinpoints, pinpoints the origin of suffering, namely our relentless clinging to what we want or pushing away what we do not want. The leaf that has to do with clinging and its converse pushing away. And of course, in the process of clinging, there's a reinforcement of I, me, and mine. A reinforcement that cannot last. And so, we have to start clinging all over again. And we forget this key leaf. The, the practice, the teachings of the Buddha invite you, instead of clinging, to let go. Instead of pushing away, to let be. Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, put it very clearly. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Peace. Your struggle in this world would have come to an end. Serious. True. Pragmatism calls also for us to attune the teachings to the culture of our time and place. Thich Nhat Hanh, the much beloved contemporary Zen teacher from Vietnam who lives in the US uh, currently, and in France too, makes this crystal clear when he says in one of his he says, Buddhism is not one. The teaching of Buddhism is many. When Buddhism enters one country, that country always acquires a new form of Buddhism. The first time I visited Buddhist communities in this country, meaning the US, I asked a friend, Please show me your Buddha, your American Buddha. 
The question surprised my friend because he thought that the Buddha is universal. In fact, the Chinese have a Chinese Buddha. Tibetans have a Tibetan Buddha. And also the teaching is different. The teaching of Buddhism in this country is different from in other countries. Buddhism, in order to be Buddhism, must be suitable, appropriate to the psychology and the culture of the society it serves. I'm very much on target. So today, as we find ourselves immersed in a culture of rampant consumerism, the arrows that we need to consider, the poisoned arrows, are arrows contaminated by the poisons of salemanship. Poisons that relentlessly entice us to buy what we do not need. And very often we don't even want. Contemporary teachings in America need to make us aware of the futility, now the counterproductiveness of thinking that this acquisition will finally make me happy. And here comes practice. Because it's only when the teachers can help us look, look at a actual experience firsthand with fresh eyes that they can speak with true authority. And this authority that we endow ourselves with is enhanced when we're totally in touch with our experience. Undistracted, in the midst of silence, as is the case during meditation practice. Practice is about being fully present with our direct experience. I say direct experience to mean not a, an experience that's mediated by thought, even distorted by thought. The actual body posture during meditation is, is not the issue. It may help, sure, to have a right posture, etc. But that's not the main issue. The Buddha said we can meditate sitting, walking, standing, even lying down. I don't do the latter because I fall asleep, but you know. In giving instructions for sitting, the Buddha would direct his followers to go find the exposed roots of a tree. In, in rural India, that's what you did. And sit there. Nowadays, we sit on chairs and cushions. Fine, you know, whatever. What matters is the presence of mind. To develop and cultivate a mind that instead of constantly chasing after this or that, has to discover the bliss of just being fully present aware as life unfolds. It's a hands-on experience. Or maybe I should say more appropriately, a mind-on experience. 
not in reference to thoughts in the mind, but to the mind, to the fullness of our mind, to being mindful of all that comes our way. Now, if restlessness, restlessness comes and visits us, well, let's be with our restlessness. Let's be present with our restlessness. I know it's difficult, sure. But um, it's not a question of fueling the restlessness, but letting the restlessness percolate us. Letting ourselves experience it. Experience it. Letting the process full follow its course. Eventually, we'll come out at the other end. We do. I'll, I'll make here a brief parenthesis just to talk about the precepts that guide a retreat like this, that we must abide by in a retreat like this, and the main one being silence. We need an abundant dose of silence in order to, to, to find the, the space to meditate. And of course, silence requires the collaboration of others. So we need all to all be silent, except at the times when retreats are encouraged, like inquiry groups or interviews. Of course, there is in a chatter, and yes, it will. It's likely that it will continue and abate it at least for a while. And maybe even will appear to be exacerbated because of the silence surrounding it. But that's not a problem. First of all, it it, if there is that inner chatter, it provides us with an opportunity to witness our addiction to verbal construction of our lives. And it's only this awareness that can eventually open the door for turning off our inner yakety yak. And in practical terms, of course, turning off the chatter also means turning off the telephone, any computer, any electronic device for communicating naturally. Also, any reading or writing. You know, downstairs there's a beautiful library there. Look at it if you wish, but I don't recommend that you go there. And certainly not that you start pulling books out of it to read. Uh, as Raquel mentioned, of course, you may have to do a little bit of writing, leave her a note, or reading, read a note from her. Those are necessary things, of course. If you keep a diary, well, write minimally in it. 
Don't use it as an opportunity to let all your verbal compulsions out. Just, just write. You may write, I'll write the next page when I get home. Whatever. Whatever. Okay. So, silence of words. This is a paramount precept we need to abide by. Not because anything wrong with world, words, they're not intrinsically inappropriate, but they're not appropriate for this time during the retreat. Briefly, there are four other precepts to follow during the duration of this retreat. And as in the case of silence, the rationale is pragmatic. No killing means no killing of bugs primarily. No stealing, very obvious. Not engaging in sexual activities and not taking of intoxicants. Killing and stealing, the main reason for abstaining from that is, well, benefit of the bugs too, but basically because it, if you do it, it entangles your mind. It, it does leave marks in your mind. Sexual activities and intoxicant do entangle both your body and your mind in ways that are not helpful during the retreat. Nobody is arguing against sexual activities or even about drinking a glass of wine or two or three. Three, that's enough. <laughs> so we need to remain disentangled. Okay, let me recap a little bit before finishing it. As I said at the beginning, the Buddha initially doubted that his teachings could be understood. But he eventually was persuaded by the god Brahma, as the legend goes, to go ahead and teach it. And so, eventually the Buddha found the most effective way of teaching that was a way that was attuned to the culture of his time and with modifications, it works with the culture of our time as well. He depicted the, the path to follow in terms that could be easily understood and he selected just a few things that would be useful to teach. The proverbial handful of leaves, instead of all the leaves in the forest. In the talk so far, I went over some of the leaves. One is participating in an atmosphere of silence, yes. 
and also pointed out that the key leaf was about leaf, sorry, the key leaf was in that handful was about putting an end to clinging. So the conclusion from all of this, it seemed to me that, that there was really no reason for the Buddha to doubt, wait for the bells. Maybe the god Brahma wanted to say something here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the god Brahma could, could have said something. He could have said, you know, sure, I encourage a Buddha to teach, but I also understand why he was doubtful. Because Yes, as the Buddha knew very well, absolutely, only too well, there comes a point where the essence of the teaching, teachings cannot any longer be translated in terms of ordinary culture. Both in the times of the Buddha and in our times. How so? Well, let me just pick up some examples or illustrate what I'm trying to say. One point. Our culture is very good at examining what goes on out there. You know, I was a scientist. I was very much devoted to that. And how does scientific culture, which is permeating all our culture, deal with finding things out by setting up observer unobserved, subject object duality. So you look at things from the outside. Science is great at that. And that's the way we think about discoveries. But it doesn't work to look inside us. It, it's we are really clueless in our culture about how to examine ourselves, even through psychology. Because psychology, too, tends to set that up. I mean, I'm not arguing against psychology, but, but the tendency is that. Again, an, another example. Very similar. We're very good at mapping the world and mapping our trips in the world. The latest device, of course, which I so far have managed to avoid, is the famous GPS, Global <laughs> Positioning System. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's great. Maybe it helped you come here, you know. But but it doesn't work for the inner trip at all. What I'm trying to say, that trying to translate everything in terms of our 
culture. It just cannot work. It, it ends up trivial, trivializing the practice. So there comes a time, a time in our practice when we have to put aside all our cultural condition, all our cultural coordinates, and to be, and we have to begin to see things through the freshness of our transformed mind. Only then are we ready to see what life truly reveals. reveals. And as our practice evolves, even the leaves, the teachings, this handful of leaves, handed out from the teachers, must also evolve. Eventually, those leaves, those teachings, emphasize the development of abilities like focus and presence. As the practice unfolds, what becomes paramount is to be able to unload our mind. As the mind sheds stuff and eventually becomes unburdened, the leaves are no longer needed. All that is left is the afterglow. The afterglow, the wake. And just as the teachings were symbolized by leaves, I propose that we symbolize the wake of the teachings, which left behind, like this. A cutout in the shape of a leaf that's empty. Thus, the mind and the teachings give us the gift of emptiness. And there's nothing more to say. Let's just sit for a few minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.